Okay, guys, let's uh, let's go ahead and get started. We'll open with prayer, and then uh, we'll take a look. Uh, Father, we thank you again for uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which we remembered yesterday, and uh, we experience on a moment-by-moment basis. And thank you for the new life that we have in him, the new life that his resurrection promises and secures for us. And, uh, Lord, as we look now at this topic of the image of God and man, I pray that you'd give us um, clarity and understanding as we approach the subject. Um, be glorified in what we have to say tonight, we ask. In Christ's name, amen. So the sermon yesterday, I was like, I picked a topic a couple of weeks ago, and I'm like, okay, and then I'm getting close to starting putting it together. And I'm like, what was I thinking? They didn't do anything. There's nothing on the Bible about what they did on Saturday. What was I thinking? Um, and so then I was like, okay, well, we figured it out. We got through that. And then this subject, Imago Day. It's right there in the Bible, repeated a number of times that man is created in the image of God, and it explains nothing. It doesn't ever come up with a list of this is how God is, or man is in God's image. So it's kind of a similar, what was I thinking kind of moment. But um, there, it, it does raise some questions. So um, just to begin with, the Bible is pretty clear that man is created in God's image. So uh, Genesis 1, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That's also repeated again in in, uh, chapter 5, at the beginning of chapter 5 with the genealogies. Um, In chapter 2, verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So there's something unique about how God created man. Because when he created the creatures, all he said was, Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. But when he formed man, he breathed the breath of life into him. And so that word breathe... Um, ruach can also mean spirit. It's the same thing in Greek. Greek does the same thing. as Breath and spirit are the same. So it could be a play on words here that God breathed the spirit of life into him or spirited the spirit of life into him or something. But that is something that's very unique from the rest of the creatures is that man um, had this intimate moment with God. I love it. There was an explanation of God leans over and breathes into Adam and he opens his eyes and what's the first thing he sees? God's face hovering over him, breathing the breath of life into him. So it's, it's kind of a pretty thing, but it also talks to the intimacy of the relationship. So we're created in God's image. We're created differently than the rest of the animals. We don't know how the, the uh, angels were created. Probably just God said, let there be angels, and poof, there was. Um, yeah. Right. So he, he breathed the breath of life into nothing. <laughs> Actually, I don't know if they have the spirit like that. So I, I don't know. So what are you saying? They're different. They're not mm-hmm. the same as humans. Right. They're not limited in time and space, and they take God's orders, so they go anywhere. Um, I think they are limited. I don't think they're omnipresent because uh, Michael was detained fighting the prince of Persia, and so he was delayed coming to answer Daniel's prayer. Uh, I'm saying they go where they're assigned. Oh, yeah. The, they're not 
dimensional beings. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so man is created this way. He's created in God's image. And then the, the good news is that the image was not erased at the fall. In Genesis 9, 6, this is after the flood. Uh, God says, whoever sheds the blood of men, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made him in his own image. And then just, there's a couple other places, but just to grab one from the New Testament, James 3, 9, with it, that is the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the image of God. So the image of God wasn't erased or um, removed because of the fall. So there's something hopeful in that. Um, oh, I think I deleted the next note I wanted to make here. Yes, I did. Um, oh, yeah, <clears throat> I remember. So, um, so what we get is the fact that we were created in, in God's image, but we don't get what that means. And instead of getting a list of this is the characteristics we share with God, instead of that, what we get is man was created in God's image, therefore. And that's, a, I think, a better way of doing it because it, instead of giving us a set number of rules, it gives us a trajectory or, or a, a way to think about that. Since man was created in God's image, if you murder somebody, you get executed. That's what the, the um, covenant with Noah said. So it, it doesn't have to go into the details of what way they share it, but it's just because this imprint is on him. Or from uh, James, you can't badmouth other people because they're created in God's image. So uh, it gives you that idea of there's a human dignity, there's a human quality that should be respected. Um, if you run over a dog in your car, it's there's nothing in the Bible that says you have sinned and, and need to repent. Um, a dog is not created in God's image. So you may feel bad about it, but you wouldn't go to jail for it. I'm not sure about that. I've heard that teaching before, but I'm not positive that's true. Yeah, or, or is that, that means our pets go with us. Lions have vastly changed our <laughs> 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 Um, <laughs> Funny story about that. We got, at, at our house we bought in Illinois, we got DSL installed. And so the guy that came to connect the DSL, that's through the phone lines, um, was chatting with Lisa and... He hated pets. He didn't want one. And he got this diseased, mangy, terrible cat that threw up everywhere and everything. And he just fell in love with it. The Lord just broke his heart for this cat. And so when the cat died, it really troubled him. And he's like, I don't like pets to begin with. And now I fall in love with this thing. And now it dies. And so he did a deep dive into the Bible to say, do pets go to heaven? Or do, are they in the new heavens and the new earth? And uh, he wrote a book on it, you know, self-published kind of thing. But he, his opinion was that animals will be there in the new heavens and the new earth. I was like, well, it's possible. You know, it's not doesn't say it explicitly, but it doesn't rule it out. So. Well, in general, you didn't say what animals people are talking their pets. Yep, yep. And the other thought is. Um, Somebody else had told me they believe this is their heresy. Everybody's got their own little heresy. Is uh, He believes that animals could naturally speak, but at the fall that ability was removed from them. And he says the reason he believes that is because 
when uh, Balaam is going to uh, curse Israel, the donkey doesn't, it doesn't say the donkey was given the gift of speech. It just says God opened its mouth. And so when the donkey starts talking, Balaam doesn't even bat an eye. Well, of course, you stupid thing. Why aren't you going? Where You know, it just picks right up and goes. So I, I don't necessarily agree with that. I'm just reporting it. <laughs> but um, all that to say that we're, we're, since we're created in God's image, there is something about human dignity. There, there is a, a place where people have to be treated differently than we would treat um, the animals or the trees or something like that. So it really bugs me when PETA says animals are people too. There was an ad on one of the bulletin boards uh, along the freeway that used to said pets are people too. No, they're not. <laughs> pets, pets should be cared for. They should be tended to. That's part of our dominion over the earth. But they're not people. And so um, Lisa will tell you, I get really snippety when people say, oh, are you pet parents? Or call me my dog's dad. I was like, no, I've met his dad, and he didn't look anything like me. <laughs> I've seen this uh, video. I think it's kind of a Catholic way of evangelizing. But anyways, he asked the question to, to these people trying to talk about uh, Mother Day, the treatment of, of God. Yes, these non-believers, if a stranger was gone in the pool or a dog was gone in the pool next to him, who would you say and a lot of people said the animal. And he's like, really? A human being is drowning in the pool and you're going to say the animal? Because people really do feel that kind of bond and connection. Yeah. They don't understand the image of God. I don't know. But yeah, a lot of people are like, I'm the animal. Say the dog. <laughs> that other person can fend for themselves. The dog can fend for himself. Um, <clears throat> when I was in Kenya, um, we were visiting uh, the dean of a, a, a religious school, a Christian school there. And uh, one of the days we went out evangelizing. And so he paired us up with some of the students from the, the theology section of the school. And we're walking th- walking door to door, which in Kenya is, you know, like five minutes from door to door. It's big open farmland. And uh, we get close to this one house and this dog comes rushing out to the gate and barking and yapping. And he, the guy I'm with is just like, God, I hate dogs. I just They're just nasty. He says, why do you Americans love dogs so much? And uh, I said, well, let me put it to you this way. In America, if you touch an eagle's egg, you can go to jail. But you can kill your baby in your womb. And he was like, really? And I said, yeah. And he goes, I need to pray for America. I said, yes, you really do. <laughs> so we just have an upside down thing. When I see people with their dogs in, in carts, not a shopping cart, but a, a dog cart, I just want to come up and go, oh, it's a dog. It's just a, it's really sweet. It's really nice, but it's just a dog. Um, there's, there, there should be a human in there. <laughs> I think what it is also, if I kind of riff on this for a second, um, birth rates are dropping precipitously. And so we have an innate desire to care for another human being. And so when we don't have a human being, we'll find a dog or a cat and, and, turn that into a person. So that's how strong that Imagio Day is in us. Um, see, before I go on, I think there was something else I wanted to say about that. Oh, yeah, I, was, I don't want to go into what uh, what characteristics human beings have. Yeah, like I used to think, one of the characteristics is that human beings communicate and other animals don't, but they do. Whales communicate. You know, They're finding trees are now communicating 
if you chop down a tree, the, the message gets out or something, I guess. Um, so maybe communication isn't such a divine imprint on us as, as I thought. Intelligence, well, ravens are using tools. You know, monkeys, they found using tools to get termites out. Um, there was The one that blows my mind is they, they gave this raven this food, and the raven you know, would eat it, and eventually they put it in a jar, and it couldn't get its head in, so it started filling, uh, um, throwing rocks in it to raise the water level. The stupid raven figured out if you put rocks in there, it'll raise the water level and I get the food off. I was like, Yeah, they're really clever. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so. <laughs> Yeah, they're, they're, the, the Carlsons had one that was had taken residence at their house and would bring them things, you know, find something shiny and come and drop it at their house. And it's like, thanks, guys. Appreciate that. Um, so, yeah, so I don't want to get into, like, the characteristics, but um, what's on your handout is uh, there was a paper by uh, a pastor, theologian, um, conference speaker, Thabiti Abinwali, and I really like Thabiti. He's very wise. He's very careful. He's a good um, communicator. He's good at debating and that kind of stuff. And so I have a lot of respect for him. Um, so he wrote this people, or this paper, people, many ethnicities, one race. And what he's arguing in there in that whole paper is there's only one race, and that's the human race. So to say that the term racism or there are different races of, of humans was a racist construct in order to figure out how can we have slaves. And so the concept of race was created really to, uh, in, to authenticate or to, uh, uh, to send approval to slavery. And it's, it's really a horrible idea. So even when people say that's racist, just the concept that it's racist is racist. <laughs> it's just that bad. But that's not what I want to talk about so much here. We'll talk a little bit about it. But um, he made some really interesting points, and so I had to really stop and consider him. As a matter of fact, I tweeted some questions at him, and I was hoping he'd answer real quick, but he hasn't. So um, I'm hoping to hear back from him on, on some questions I had. Um, so the first one, he says, man, male and female, is made in the image of God. Historically, great Christian minds have wrestled with precisely what that image consists of. Generally speaking, theologians understand the image to include certain rational, spiritual, moral, governmental, or ruling capacities and functions. Some have distinguished between broader and narrower senses in which man bear the image of God. The broader sense refers to those ways in which man continues to image God after the fall. As with man's intellectual capability, his spirituality, moral agency, and natural affections. The narrower sense refers to those ways in which man does not continue to image God after the fall, as with perfect righteousness, holiness, and knowledge. So you see that we did lose something in the fall, but we still retain enough of the image of God to have God command, um, for example, execution if you kill somebody. Um, so that it's still there. It's just now... Oh, here's my note about that. The Bible doesn't really answer how or in what ways. Instead, it seems to give us it's true, therefore. And this is a better answer. So I didn't delete my note. Yay. I really rewrote this, this particular class quite a bit. So if I feel a little bit clumsy with it, because I am. 
no big surprise. Um, so one of the things that we know about God is God exists as three persons in one God. God has eternally existed as a community. There's been three distinct persons. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. Three distinct persons have always existed, and they've always existed in community. So we can say in one way that's something that humanity bears the image of God is we are communal beings. Um, they're finding that it's a huge problem after the pandemic. People got so used to being isolated, mental health issues went through the roof. I mean, it's just terrible. Um, suicides went up. Uh, mental health uh, care is, is on a huge, bigger demand than it had been. And it's because we're not built to be alone. Some of us like being alone, but generally speaking, we're built to be in community. And so that is one thing that, that as Christians we would say we get that from the image of God, is, is we should be in community. And uh, so one of the terms, and this is what I was bugging the BD about today, is the idea of culture. So we, we exist in community, and when you get a bunch of people together, it develops a culture. So what does culture mean? And this is really hard. I had to go through my seminary notes looking for a definition of what culture is. Uh, a 1952 study of 110 authors and 52 concepts determined that perhaps the broadest definition of what culture refers to is everything that is produced by human beings as distinct from all that is part of or produced by nature. So anything we produce as, as human beings that isn't done by nature. So even if we take nature and reshape it. So I mow my lawn, and that is a form of culture. Is, is the grass in my front yard shouldn't be up to my hips because in our culture, it doesn't, you don't do that. Um, so that's what they're talking about when they talk about culture is really kind of how we live together. How do we, how do we behave together? And this is where Thabiti has some interesting thoughts, and I want to get your opinion on this. So this is the second quote on your handout. Humanity has lost the perfect righteousness, holiness, and knowledge of God, but remains a creature in God's image. In the generations right after the fall, the development of human culture occurs. The implements and accidents of culture are scattered throughout the early record. Cain's children build cities, Genesis 4.17. They begin animal husbandry, 4.20. They play music, 4.21. And they forge metals, 4.22. So those are... Um, what, what Thabiti calls implements or accidents of culture. And it isn't like we didn't do it on purpose. Accident is uh, something that is produced by that. Uh, however, he goes on, the development of human culture was not an amoral or neutral process. Culture, like humanity, is fallen and idolatrous. The development of culture led to the perversion of marriage, 419, murder and vengeance, 423 through 24, Universal wickedness, chapter 6, verse 5 and 12, and eventually universal judgment, chapter 6. Fallen culture also finds expression in the families, geographic distribution, and language confusion at Babel. So what he is saying is that culture is a product of the fall. And that's where I'm kind of questioning that. Is, is human culture a product of the fall? Well, it's 
interesting you point this out. This is something that I was actually observing recently too, having reread Genesis. It's been a while since I reread Genesis. And I was noticing that there was a distinction made between Cain's people and all that they were doing. Things that we would generally speaking say were really good, mm -hmm. you know, creative. Um, they created society, essentially. Mm -hmm. And then you go back to um, Adam, you know, Seth and that, that line, and they were kind of just no, like, ah, I say nomads, but, you know, agriculturally, you know, focused people that just kind of had a very simplistic culture based around God mm -hmm. and the things of God. And it was simplistic versus grandiose and artistic and creative. And the, the juxtaposition of those two cultures was really interesting and kind of striking to me, something I hadn't really noticed. And so for him to point this out, I, I kind of had the, a similar conclusion I came to as well. But I feel like there's probably some qualification. Yeah. Yeah, because I was really shocked when he went through and he listed all those things. I'm like, yeah, that was Cain slew Abel, got kicked out, had kids, built a city, and then all of a sudden this stuff starts coming up. So is human culture, as expressed with metallurgy and, you know, and husbandry and all that stuff, is that a product of the fall? Could it have been done without the fall? Do we have examples of Adam prior to... Because no. I was just thinking from a practical stance, like from a tool stance, if you are eating meat, then typically you need some kind of tool in order to do that. Um, yeah, you're not going to grab a, a cat and hold it over the fire. You know, you burn your hand, right? Yeah. And who eats cat? Come on. I've tried it. It's not that great. I mean, um. <laughs> so... Yeah, I can almost see it as a culture being at a bare minimum a perversion of culture. So like mm -hmm. there there is a fallen aspect to it. So like creativity in and of itself, I don't feel like is necessarily a bad thing. I've often heard of it as an expression of a magio day. Mm -hmm. God's creativity is reflected in people, um, and our desire to create is likely tied to that. Yeah, it's just perverted because of the fall, so we do weird things. But So similar, metallurgy may not be inherently bad, but the way that we use it, the way that we understand it, and push it forward, uh, almost like the Tower of Babel. I was asking about this a while ago, and I still need to say it. <laughs> but it almost seems like the, the concept of the Tower of Babel isn't inherently wrong. It's the pride involved in it. That skews it from like, hey, let's work together and actually do something good, to let's do something so that we are with God. Yeah, because God said, "Go and fill the earth," and they went, yeah, thank you. "Okay, well, here on the plane, um, we're going to build a big tower to ourselves." Was, yeah, that. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Meeting. Yeah. Well, he also said, don't eat from that tree. Right. So everything was, that was a rule, but everything basically was provided. So that's a good question. They didn't need meat necessarily, or did they didn't have food. God provided. 
provided everything. They would just walk up to a tree and grab something and, and be satisfied. So we, do we really know what God would have done with that had they not disobeyed? I hate going there. But what if they hadn't obeyed? What if they had obeyed? I don't know because they didn't. But, but yeah, the question is, was there a culture between Adam and Eve? Because you get two people together and it starts forming culture. You start figuring out how you're going to do things. Well, they, God, but God was giving them focus to something. Mm-hmm. But then their culture would have been focused on God. Well, but he would, he would tell them what to do. What did God want out of all that? He wanted his human creations to be relational. I mean, they were such that he walked with them. Yeah, I, I want to go back to the creativity thing because if you stop and think about creation, God went nuts. I mean, he just he went ballistic. There are galaxies so far away we, we may never see them. They'll burn out before the light ever reaches us. Um, uh, there's a book called uh, Notes from the Total World by uh, Nate Wilson, and I love the way he says this. He goes, so God is a God of excess. You, you pick up a snowflake, and it's beautiful. And he doesn't just create 10 of them. He fills the entire, you know, landside with these things. He just explodes with creativity. So is creativity part of the image of God? And if it is, then it may, it probably isn't a product of the fall. It's a, it's distorted by the fall. And culture may not have come into existence at the fall. It may have just been distorted. So, um, for example, like I, I like where you're going with this, Jim, is you're thinking, what was going on in the garden? And I think that's a really good question to ask. What did God tell them? What was the first thing he told them when he created them? Be fruitful and multiply. Okay, sexual reproduction is not necessarily culture. Uh, animals do it without thinking about it. Yeah, but he also said, be fruitful and multiply, have dominion over the earth. So if humanity's if God's plan for humanity was for them to spread out and have dominion, um, what would have happened if had they not fallen? Would they still have had dominion? What would dominion look like? Would it look like them not changing anything? Or would it look like them building cities? I don't know. <laughs> but isn't having dominion a form of having a culture that spreads across the earth? But can you rule without a culture? Yeah, we wouldn't need them because we wouldn't have anything to be ashamed of. Um, what about, you, you talked about just, you know, like walk up to a tree and pull a piece of fruit off and eat. Um, but what God said he gave them was all the stuff that grew, not just the fruit on the trees. So is food preparation cultural? If, if Eve said, you know what, I got these mushrooms and they're really good. And if you take this, this thing, I'll call it basil and put it on there and eat it together. It's awesome. Is that culture? They had changed languages, and I feel like I agree with you, and it's distorted. Mm-hmm. It's what did you do after languages have changed? Yeah, we're going to get there. I want to get to the Tower of Babel because there, there's, that's a big impact on culture as well. Uh, language is part of culture. 
but still, let's still try to focus in the garden for a minute. So act, uh, Adam's first act of dominion, this was before Eve was created, was go out and name the animals. So all the critters came before him. Naming a thing like that, is that a form of culture? God's creating something, and he's actually Adam to join in that creation by helping Eve. Right. And so he's sharing in communion with Adam. There, there has to be some sort of communal activity between Adam and Eve and, and God. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, the purpose of it. He wanted to be in communion. Mm-hmm. He's enjoying us. What do we enjoy with each other but the things we share? It, it seemed like God was delighting in the fact that Adam was naming the animals. Yeah. No. Oh, that's cute. You're going to call that a whale. Isn't that sweet? Yeah, yeah. So he might, he might have been doing that. So, okay, let's take it one step further. The next thing that was created was Eve. What was Adam's response to Eve? Well, he, he's Ish in Hebrew, Ish, but, but when Eve shows up, she's Isha. <laughs> that's that's Isha is woman. So first of he, first of all he goes that's what I'm talking about. That's what I was looking for. But the next thing he does is recite a love poem to her. Yeah. So is a, is his act of creating a poem, reciting a poem to his bride, is that a form of culture? That's that's what we're wrestling with. Is it feels to me like some of these things are. Form, like we're inescapably cultural. Like, like we just can't help, because if we do it, we've now created a human culture that's distinct from God's culture, whatever the Trinitarian culture looks like. That hurts my brain. Could it just be that that was its own unique culture? So kind of like what you were saying is there was a culture in communion with God and then when the fall happened, that created a separate culture apart from God, because now we had created that divide. Uh, so in each instance, culture exists purely because there was community. Uh, it's just that one community was as intended, with mm-hmm. God in the fold, God being the fold. God leading the fold. <laughs> That's the shepherd. Yeah. But then um, it separated. And then after the fall, this is the first time we see... Adam and Eve picked something up and put it together to make something new. They took fig leaves, sewed them together, and tried to cover themselves. The first act after the fall is a cultural expression, and now I'm wearing clothes because clothing looks different in different cultures. So I think you can, you can clearly see that there, but to me it just kind of feels like some of these precursors were a form of, like we can't help but make culture. It just, it's just inescapable. Um, It's, it, it, you know, if community is, right, maybe culture is an inescapable product of that. Mm-hmm. You know, that maybe we just can't get away from it. So so where Stephanie was going was the question about Babel. Something really drastic happens at Babel because up until that point, there's one humanity. Well, there's kind of two because there's the children of Seth and the children of uh, Cain, but Cain, nobody from Cain's clan survived. They got blasted in the flood. Um, the only people who made it on the ark were from Seth's line. But I, I think the first key point was they all spoke the same language. That's that's where we're going with this. Yeah. Yeah. So 
even if it was Kane's line that created metallurgy and, and all those other things that they came up with, music and stuff, apparently Seth's line in, included that because they didn't have to recreate it after the flood. And Kane's line didn't survive. They were all wiped out. So after the flood and humanity begins to repopulate, they're all speaking one language because they're all one family. And then they go out to the plane and they, they say, well, let's build a tower and show how great we are. And we'll reach up to heaven and we'll go talk to God whenever we want. And so it's so cute because God looks down. He comes down to look at their tower. They're all proud about building it up to the heavens and he comes down to look at them. It's, okay, all right, what's going on? And then he says, if they try this, there's nothing stopping them. So he confuses their language. That is a really clear, I think that's a clear di distinction in cultures now because now we've got language barriers. Um, and then once they're driven where they were supposed to go to begin with, which was go cover the earth, now you can, you can step back and look at that table of nations right after that. And you can see there are huge cultural differences between Africa and Asia and Europe and um, the Middle East and all that. They, as they spread out, they began to form their own very unique bigger cultures, metacultures, if you will. So um, I just I kind of wonder about um, his statement about the, 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 the cultures being a product of the fall. But here's, here's what he says, the, the second paragraph. How, um, oh, no, I read that. There are at least two reasons why we must remember that human culture is a post-lapsarian. That's a fancy way of saying after the fall, is a post-lapsarian development. One, to prevent us from wrongly rooting, and I insert any one human culture itself, as opposed to the capacity for cultural production, in an original creation of God, thereby making ethnic human culture seemingly unquestionable or intractable. Let me translate that into English. <laughs> um, he's saying we have to make sure that we remember, this is Thabiti's thoughts, that human culture is a product of the fall because it prevents us from rooting any single culture as the right one. It's, it's, you know, there's like saying, well, we inherited the culture from Adam and Eve. That was the original one. So our culture is right and yours is all wrong. If we say, hey, it's a product of the fall, humanity broke up, and now all of a sudden we've got all these cultures. Hey, any one is as good or as bad as another one. So that's one of the warnings he gives us. And two, to prevent us from overlooking the fact that what God is doing in redemptive history, in part, is restoring his people to the full image of God and the character of or the culture of holiness, righteousness, and true knowledge befitting life in the image. So, in other words, what God is accomplishing, and this this is kind of helpful too, is where does history go? Right? Starts in the, in the garden, fall, we get to Babel. Dispersion, dispersion of the nations. Um, where do we end up eventually? At the end of the Bible. In a city with people from every tribe, tongue, name, uh, language, kindred, everything. But we don't go back to the garden. We wind up in a city. And a city is an expression of culture. If you go to a city in um, Myanmar, Burma, it looks very different than a city in France. There's cultural expression in these things. So what happens is we wind up in a city and we wind up with a redeemed culture. Sin has been removed. Um, opposition. God is right there in the middle of them. So you were talking about, you know, God is, is, is 
And I was like, yes, exactly, because God was there in the garden with them. Sin broke that. We get to the end, and there's no need for a temple. God sits right in the middle of his people, and he's right there with us. So that's that's kind of the redeemed culture at the end. So Thabiti says if we get too hung up on culture now, we may think that one of them, or the one we like, is the right one, and we're going to try to project that into the future. And he says that's that's not right. What's happening at the end is going to be something very different. Yeah, hopefully. Avoid imperialism, yeah, because we think we've got it right. Um, so we call Africans native, or, uh, uh, savages and the Native Americans as savages, and, you know, they need to be domesticated and that kind of thing. Yeah. I kind of just, oh, sorry, go for it. I was just thinking if our definition of culture is tied to man's production, I can actually get behind why he's saying that culture is a fallen thing because if it's a man-created thing, if the city is produced by God, then it's no longer a cultural expression. It's mm. expression. Yeah, and that city at the end comes down from heaven. So similarly, like I was reading one and two here, and these, these feel contradictory because he's talking about a culture of holiness, of righteousness, of true knowledge. How is that not contradicting the fact that there's one correct culture? Mm. Because that is the correct culture. Because it's, yeah, it's righteous. But once again, that culture isn't man made. Mm-hmm. It's the relationship with God that founds that, that informs that. I'm going to see where he's coming from. I'm going to say it is man made in that you. how do you redeem a culture? You got to get everybody in it saved. That's the only way to change a culture, right? So when we come to the end, and we're in the city, and it is a cultural expression, it is a cultural expression of all the redeemed, regenerate, resurrected people living together as God intended humanity to. So it's not like He created a culture and then brought people into it. He creates a culture by creating a people. That's kind of where I'm going with that. And that's that's more pure image of, de- of God. Imago Dei is, you know, the, the heavenly Jerusalem. Um, um, I don't know. Let's take a peek. I happen to have the, uh, the summation of all human knowledge right here at my fingertips. ESV, there it is. Nope. Culture is not. Oh, wait, it's. Looking for verses. Let's do flex. Nope. Culture is not in the ESV. That's what I was saying is I, I don't know. <laughs> it would be unique. There would never be anything that would be comparable to it. Do you think it's fair to say that human cultures are a result of, of a God always intended to have a God kingdom culture? Because the world was created out of nothing. You know, we were, just like the New Jerusalem, we were given the world. You know, God did it. He mm-hmm. gave it to us. And he's redeeming us back into a new earth. Like, I think he always had a culture and all these ethnicities that we have. I think within them are expressions that God always intended to have in his human culture. And that humans, because of the fall, we distorted it. And that's why there's... We've chosen to say, yeah, my culture is better than your culture, mm-hmm. all this other stuff. 
but I think that God may have always intended to have his human culture. Yeah, human cultures are a result of all that. I think we were going to have a culture. Maybe that's what kingdom, part of what kingdom of God is, is this redeemed culture. Because again, once it, a culture is the product of the people. And then the culture forms the people. So it's this interplay between the people and the culture feeding each other. Um, so if the people are redeemed, the input into the culture is now redeemed. The culture is now redeemed. And so that, that's kind of interesting that way. <laughs> I have a bad tendency of doing that. So. <laughs> But anyway, or people, whatever. But um, where did all the different? If if everybody was coming from Noah's family, how did we get the different types of people? Because God was the one who took those people, and mainly with the language, and scattered them all over the planet. So how do we wind up with uh, wind up an with Asian body type and a, an African? Yes, I think it was. No, I'm being serious. But here's here, here's the problem: is is evolution is not blind. It's not unguided. It is not a force that's devoid of God. It is our adaptation, our adaptation to the environment in which we're in. And and I think on, on a micro level, you could see where a human family would um, begin to have darker pigmented skin because they live in a hotter climate where there's more sun. And then you take those people and you send them to Norway where they never get any sun and all of a sudden the hair is blonde and the skin's light. I, I think it's, I think cult, or not culture, I think uh, environment can play a role in that. So I, it's not like Seth looked this way and, or uh, what were the kids' names? Shem, yeah, Shem looked this way, Ham looked that way, and Jepheth looked that way. They all came from the same person, you know, same gene pool. Um, so I think it gets a little weird if we try to say they had different. This one had these genes, and this one had this no, gene. No, 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 he doesn't. At the very end of it, we were sitting in this room that was supposed to look like a Middle Eastern type of ancient room or something. And she flat out told us that uh, Jim, Ham, and Jaffa were black and white and Asian. <laughs> that they all came from no looking that way. And I, I remember thinking, <laughs> <laughs> Well, the only, it's thing, just so crazy. the only thing that God is supposed to be said was he confused the language. Yeah. Who was wondering if he like teleported people all over the earth? <laughs> you know, that would be nice. I don't think he did because the the section of Genesis what he talks about is in the days of Peleg. That's when the earth was divided. Yeah. And what that means is not plate tectonics happen and, and the continent sailed apart. What it means is the families of the earth were spread out. And because the next story is Babel. And here's what happened. Now, these people went this way speaking this language. These people went that way speaking that language. So it's one of the things, uh, philology is really interesting to me. And, and um, Lauren likes to study that too. Look for root words that are common, not just in the Romance languages, but also in Germanic and, and uh, Norwegian and that kind of stuff. And, and they come back to this one thing. So 
there could have been a root language that got lost. But we can tie a lot of languages back together. The big difference is between uh, Asian Asian languages and, and, um, and um, Indo-European languages are really different. Klingon is going to be a different problem in Vulcan as well because we're talking different planets. So they might not even be the same race. There we can get racist. <laughs> can you imagine evangelizing a Klingon? That is, a, yeah, totally different race. But can you imagine evangelizing a Klingon? So you're Jesus. What happened? Well, he, he died on a cross. What a failure. No, it was a huge victory. No, he didn't die gloriously in battle. Dude, you're not getting it. Mm-hmm. Except the Vikings sucked it up. I mean, they just really, they went right to it. How about a Vulcan? This is not logical. It is not logical that God could be three and one. God still master of his creation, even though we haven't mentioned Satan or Lucifer purposely tried to you know, intercept what what God did with the Lord and magnifies the Lord in, in creation. Yeah, mm-hmm. and stuff, and Satan He wanted to ruin it, but he, yeah. he, I, I love what Luther said. Luther says, Satan is a chained demon. He doesn't run loose across the earth. He's still God's devil. So why did Satan show up in the garden? Not because he got away from God. God chose to not be there at that time. He let Satan go in the garden because the fall needed to happen. So that's my seventh point of Calvinism there is, is God did it on purpose because the fall would bring him the maximum amount of glory because he's going to redeem a, a fallen humanity to himself. So he didn't create sin. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking back towards, and, and back to our earlier question of what would it have been like. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. God would have been glorious. The whole thing would have been glorious. I don't know because... God had forwarding. Jesus was the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. It was always the plan that Jesus would come and redeem people to himself. So what would it have been like? It would have not been great. That's, that's my, like I said, my, jokingly, my seventh point of Calvinism is this is the best way for it to be. This is the best possible world. This is the world that will bring God the maximum amount of glory. If he hadn't done it this way, then humanity hadn't fallen, then it would not have brought him the same amount of glory because he wouldn't be able to show his mercy. He wouldn't be able to show uh, Jesus coming and dying to redeem the people to himself. He wouldn't be able to show what sin uh, looked like uh, to the degree that he did because why was there a law? Because of sin, to make sin sinful. So, yeah, that's way far afield of Majo Day, but... Yeah, no, but it's got to be right. It's God's mercy. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to imagine, um, but this is this is the world that brings God the most glory. Um, it's just so in the in a resurrected state, we will actually be like probably really great image bearers, like in ways that we aren't now. Yeah. Um, but I don't know exactly how. It just seems like it. We would be because now, since we've fallen. 
I mean, all of our problems are rooted in our great desire to make much of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Everything we do is to make much of ourselves and to be made much of. Still grabbing fig leaves. Rather than making much out of them. And mm-hmm. so everything is affected by that. Like all of our culture things are to be made much of ourselves and to make much of, to, to get, to be made much of mm-hmm. by others. And so it like stops here at the humanity level when we, we don't make much of God. But God is still making much of himself. Mm-hmm. You know, and in the, in the end when he has all this huge redeemed people, we will properly make much of him as we should have done all along. Right, so we go back and look at Jesus. Jesus was perfect man. He hadn't fallen. He was not guilty of sin. He was what he was supposed to be. He is the image to whom we will be uh, configured or um, um, conformed. Thank you. I couldn't. I was thinking contorted, and I knew that wasn't right. Um, we will be conformed to his image, and so that will be the perfect humanity. Is what Jesus was, and and that's a great thing. That's where we want to be. I make beer, he made wine, you know. That's culture right there. And, and not only did he make wine, he made really good wine, and he made a ton of it. So the angels aren't amazing. Not as far as we can tell. There's nothing that says they were in the, We don't know a whole bunch about angels. That's what frustrates me with some evangelical ministries is they make huge demon and angelology. And it's like there's just not that much in the Bible on it. There is a difference, but... They can be, but God chose not to redeem them. That's why they long to look into the things that he's doing. Is because... Right. That's why they long to look into what happens with us. Um, There's a passage in, I think it's 1 Timothy, that says, God did this to the church to show to the angels how great he is. So he's showing off before the angels by saying, look, see these humans? I'm going to redeem them. And they're going, oh my gosh, that's incredible. You didn't redeem us. We're going to judge them. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? We'll do it without pride. We'll do it without saying, I'm better than you. We'll do it by looking at them going, you didn't honor God. So yeah, so that final culture will be redeemed, sin, death, and hell will be thrown into a lake of fire, all the sinners, uh, Satan and his, his demons, all gone. And so the earth then will be freed from that. That will have happened. And so the rest of eternity will be looking out and going, God did this. He, he took that messed up world and he brought it to this. And we'll be going through all of those stories of how he did it in each individual. And it'll be great. So that, I think, is a culture. <laughs> That brings him in the maximum amount of glory. Yeah. Why is he taking so long? Because it brings him the maximum amount of glory. Well, I, I think if culture is an innately human thing, uh, not innately, but is a human thing, then it can be judged by the same, you know, triad of reasoning last week. Yeah. For sin and not sin. Sin and righteous acts. So if you can weigh a culture by that same triangle of, uh, you know, good... Uh-huh. Um, then I, I, yeah, I mean, it, it's because it's an able human. 
And I think that's the issue, is if it doesn't glorify God amongst the other issues, then it's not God's culture. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think there's God's culture, but there's all the stuff that we do. Yep. Because what God did in Israel created a culture. Here's, here's the temple. This is what this is going to be. This is how you're going to dress. That was, I was reading through Leviticus today, and that hit me of how detailed and intimate God got with the, with the Israelites. You're not going to cut your beard this way. You're not going to cut your hair this way. You're not going to put cuts on your skin or tattoos or any of that. You're going to wear the clothes like this. That's only made this way. You can't blend the clothes. Um, you'll have tassels, and the tassels will be blue. I mean, got down to that level. Because he was creating a culture, and it was supposed to image something. So it's it's not like Babylonian culture. I don't think they got that detailed. They probably spent a lot of time talking about what you did in the temple, and here's the laws. And by the way, the king is or the the king is God too. But you know, it didn't get to the other stuff. That is fascinating. That point because I guess I noticed it in a different way slightly. God, they had just, they couldn't have even dreamed this stuff up. <laughs> God just, I was always fascinated by God just kept telling him this, 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 do this, this, this. No. Mm-hmm. You're going to eat this for lunch, except this week. This week you don't pay anything with, with leaven in it. And then after that, you have to have this meal. I mean, that's how, how intimate he got and how detailed. He was creating a culture. And the Jewish culture continues today, even though, their their nation was gone for millennia. They were scattered to the, the nations. They still have their, their really strong culture because God built that. So let's press on. What um that's um culture. What about race? Um is race different than ethnicity? Gosh, I hope so. <laughs> Yeah, that's um, I came across that recently, and I looked at it, and, and it's not race. There's no concept of race in the Bible. There is families, and what they translated race was, uh, I think it was, uh, um, I don't think it was ethnos. I think it was genos, which is uh, Genesis, where your gene, you know, that that word root. Um, so it'd be more of a, akin to a family, rather than we are a royal priesthood, a royal race. We're not a royal race. We're a royal family um, because we're, we're adopted into God's family. So, um, so yeah, we'll go back to what we talked about at the beginning with, with race. Is Race was created so that we could enslave people, so that we could say, this type of person is inferior to me, and therefore I'm going to enslave them because I'm a different race than they are. So even our Constitution says they're counted as two-thirds. Africans are counted as two-thirds. They're not even full human beings according to the Constitution. And that was the thought back then. They had um, teachings that said, well, God has multiple images. So God created humanity in his image, but he has multiple images. And so the white um, European race, that's one image of God, and the Africans are another image of God. And then what really blows my mind is when they get to the point where they said, the mark of Cain is on the Africans because their skin's black. Like, wait, time out. <laughs> then the mark of Cain survived the flood, and so it's part of humanity because we were all one family at the flood, and 
where do you get the mark of Cain survived? It's nowhere. It's the only place it's in the Bible is with Cain. And, and nowhere does it say, and therefore you can enslave Cain. As a matter of fact, God said the exact opposite. I'm going to put a mark on you. So if anybody comes near, they're going to go, oh, well, I better not kill him because God's going to get him. Get me if I do. So it's like, how do you get your theology that upside down? I mean, you really have to do some contortions to justify enslaving another human being. Or the curse of Ham. Or the, it's not even the curse of Ham. It was the curse of Canaan. So, so when God skipped over Ham and said his son, Canaan, and then took care of that, he wiped him out. So the curse of Canaan isn't around anymore either. It's like, ah. So the, um, yeah, that race idea is really a, a problem. So, again, I think Thabiti makes another good point. He says, the damage to healthy biblical identity occurs because we uncritically take real cultural differences, root them in an image imagined and often idolatrous trait like race, and proceed to engage the world on that basis. So I think this is really good. Let me say it again. The damage to healthy biblical identity occurs because we uncritically take real cultural differences. There are cultural differences, um, and they're real. I'm sorry, they're real and they're, they're sometimes big. When we take real cultural differences, root them in an imagined and often idolatrous trait like race, say, because you have this culture, you're a different race than me, and then we proceed to engage the world based on the idea that if the other culture is different than mine, then, then they're a different race than me. And I think that's the big, this is my take on the racial issues that we face today is, I think most of it is cultural. I think because America did so wrong by the African-Americans, we, we held them as slaves, and then when they were forced to be liberated, we put them as second-class citizens and wouldn't let them eat at the same bar we ate at. It kept them segregated. So by the time we get to the 1960s with the Civil Rights Act, they have formed their own culture. They, they have developed, instead of being part of the American culture, which is the American melting pot. You remember hearing that term? America is the melting pot. It's not. <laughs> it's more like a tossed salad, I think. You know, a bunch of different pieces all fit together. And then when you add the Italians, now all of a sudden you get Italian flavors in that salad. And, and now there's many Mexicans coming um, north, and there's this Mexican flavor being added to the salad. And, and it's not a melting pot where it just mer merges into one. But because we treated the Africans that way, we kept them separate from the, the rest of the American culture, they have a different way of doing things. And so people now perceive it as a racial issue because it was, it was a racial issue, and now it's grown into something that we can't just end because we force this different culture, this different but very similar culture. That's why we don't like it. It's too close. Um, and so I, I, every once in a while I hear people talk about church. And the church, Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the, um, of the, or the week. Because there's black churches and there's white churches. And I don't think it's because black people are racist and white people are racist and don't want to interact with each other. I think it is black people grew up in this church culture, white people grew up in this church culture, and they don't mix well. You have to be really intentional to mix the two cultures well. So um, I was watching a sermon by a guy talking about the resurrection. It was an Easter Sunday sermon, and it was fantastic. But he was doing the the sing-song kind of way that black preachers preach, and the guitar is kind of imitating the, the rhythms and everything, and it was like, that's just glorious, but I would never do that. <laughs> I, would look, I would look so phony if I tried to do that. And not only that, I just wouldn't pull it off well at all. Um, 
but it is something that's very steeped in their culture, and they do it really well. Why do they do it? And we don't, because we forced them to. We forced them off on their own. We kept our own. And we, in the 50s, they wouldn't let black people into white churches. It, it happened. So I think the culture thing is, you know, this is where it ties back to the cultural issue is it is a matter of culture. We have forced a different culture under our, our roof, and now we're not liking it. Um, and then if I can go on a little bit more, throw the 70s on that. What was happening in the 1970s? Crime was rising. Um, we were in a recession. We weren't, you know, the, the economy was stalled. What swept in politically was tough on crime. And so we come in and we're tough on crime. Who creates, who, who commits most of the crime? The poor. Coming out of the 1940s, 50s, into the 60s, just because we passed the Civil Rights Act didn't mean they all made the same amount of money as white people anymore. Now you've got these huge communities of black people who we put in that position, and now we come in and we're tough on crime, and we start incarcerating black people. So now there's a, a disproportionately high portion of black people in prison. It's, it's not right, but it, it's really America's fault because we segregated like that, because we took uh, race into that, cons that consideration. So that's enough about race, unless somebody wants to say something. So let's talk about some contemporary issues that, that the Imago Day might touch on. What about the death penalty? What do you think about the death penalty? Hmm? Yeah, Genesis 6-9. If anybody kills a person, by man his blood shall be shed because he was created in the image of God. So there, there are evangelicals who argue that scripturally we cannot uh, practice capital punishment. I don't know how you get around the Noahic covenant. The, the covenant with Noah didn't end. And part of that covenant was capital punishment. Yeah, well, I think it's in Romans where Paul says that the government's granted the sword. I mean, it's... He's granted the sword so that you can go to jail right. <laughs> for the rest of your life. He's pretty clear with the sword. Yeah. Yeah, but it's not, it's not, um, the sword isn't used equally there either. Because that's a, the double image in that passage is not only are, are, do we have capital punishment because, um, man is created in God's image. But because man is created in his image, we are um, able to um, be the ones to execute that mm. as well. So it's mm -hmm. not just the one who got killed that was made in God's image, but we are empowered as God's image mm. to be the ones to exact that justice. So that phrase for man is created in God's image applies to the victim and the people who will kill the, the murderer. Yeah. Mm. That's and a good way to put it. Is given that authority, yeah. I think that's probably a lot of the pushback against the death penalty now is um, we don't do it right. There's a disproportionate number of African Americans are on death row. We kill more of them than white. They've done studies that blacks tend to get the death penalty for similar crimes more than white folks do. 
So since we don't execute it well, we got to get rid of it. And I'm thinking, why don't we just reform it? Yeah, I think you, the culture, or whatever, kind of trying to overcorrect. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. So, like I said, we weren't yielding it right, so let's just get rid of it. But then we neglect. Scripture says, "You kill a man." You should execute. That guy that did the shooting in the New York subway was very intentional. He had planned this. This was something that he had intended to do, and he went and did it. I'm thinking if, if they can prove that that was him, if there's evidence and, and it can be held up in a court of law, he should be executed. Yeah. Instead, we're going we're gonna to be cruel to him and throw him in jail for the rest of his life. How is that more kind than executing him? I mean, you've, you've denied him civil rights and everything else now. And he's a burden on society. He's, yeah, I think he should have been executed. If he's guilty, if he really did it, he should be executed. That guy in, in uh, um, Winnetka, was it Winnetka? What was it? Waukesha? Yeah, Waukesha drove his car. Originally, he was he was missing people, and then all of a sudden, he just aimed for him. That's intentional murder. You know, if they can prove that they got the right guy, my opinion is he should be executed. I just feel like that goes into something that's mm -hmm. Yeah, because the problem is Genesis 9 comes after Genesis 3. So the command to execute people who kill people is given to fallen people who are going to make mistakes. And, and that's, that's horrible. So we should do it with care, but I don't know how we get away with not doing it. And, and to, to throw another monkey wrench in this, I heard a uh, uh, business executive in China was caught embezzling and they executed him. I'm like, that should not happen. Yeah. That You can't execute people for stealing. But they did. So. When God was defining the nation of Israel um, through Moses, writing all this stuff down, there's a phrase that keeps repeating occasionally. Uh, that Moses wrote and said, when, when things got really tough, uh, because there were several penalties, killing was one, blaspheming God, and some others. It was as a nation, you shall not pity them. Mm -hmm. And I'm still, I still chew on that. Yeah. That is part of our nature is to have some kind of mercy. Or vengeance. You know, we're just going to go out and have a mob execute the guy who's arrested for shooting people in the subway. What if it's not him? We've got to have some care there. Or we're going to have pity on him and just say, oh, you know, he's, he's, he helped the Boy Scouts. We'll let him go. He's a great point. I was on a jury for a murder trial. And all we were to do was establish facts. That's all the jury does. We don't pass the judgment. We don't, we're just establishing facts. There was two people on the jury that refused to establish the facts because they knew that that meant he was going to be convicted and would likely go to jail for the rest of his life. And they had pity on him, and they thought by refusing to establish these facts, even though they agreed they were in fact facts, that they were showing pity and mercy on him. And it, it was it was real interesting that the psychology. Yeah, because they're. They're showing pity to this person, but what about his victims? Right. What about his next victims? And that was the argument that 
we on the other side kind of made is you're going to have pity on him, but what about the guy who died? Does he not get justice because you want to give pity on him? Mm -hmm. And eventually we kind of ended up compromising. But yeah, it was an interesting one, I thought. Yeah. So that's the death penalty. What about um, in Ukraine? They're finding that Russia has been using um, illegal weapons and illegal tactics. They're purposely aiming at apartment buildings. Uh, they found um, they look like little nails. It's anti-personnel um, weaponry where it just explodes and shoots these out. They're finding them in um, civilian areas. They're not using them at bases or something. Those are, those are all violations of the Geneva Conventions. And so that raises the question of um, these war crimes or crimes against humanity. Um, that whole category began, was invented in, um, in the Nuremberg trials after World War II. They had to find a way to, to prosecute these folks. The problem is, if you have a materialistic government that says that there is no God, there's, there's none of that, then there, you have no basis for human rights. Mm -hmm. Human rights are, we want people to treat each other this way. Why? Because we think that's nice. So, it's just an opinion. But if we say, you can't do that to people. You can't go purposely target civilians and, and execute them and, and torture them and that kind of stuff because they have human dignity because they're created in God's image. Now we've got a bigger standard to go by. And we can actually try somebody for war crimes because they have done that. So human rights, um, why should we give Africans, why, why shouldn't we enslave Africans? If you come at it from a naturalistic, materialistic perspective, hey, strongest wins. We, we were stronger than them. We were technologically advanced. We went over, we took them. So what? Too bad. Who cares? They're just bags of chemicals anyway, so what does it matter? But if we come back and say, no, wait a minute. These are human beings created in God's image. There's something unique about them. You can't do it just because you're stronger than them. That's, that's the other thing that comes up in the law a lot is, you have to treat these people fairly. Um, I think one of the big themes that happens through Genesis is God is explaining, hey, Israel, you're fixing to go into the promised land and I'm going to have you execute these people. I'm going to have you wipe out the Canaanites. You don't just get to go kill anybody because Moab is your brother. Uh, Esau is, you know, Esau is the Edomites. They're, they're your relatives. You can't go kill them. These Canaanites... They came from a really bad place, and I've judged them. So even there, God is saying, this is happening because they're, they're, they're related to you. You're, you're all human beings here. You can't treat them as anything else. So I think there's that, that issue of the image of God really establishes a very firm foundation for human rights. Mm -hmm. And I would love to see Christians more on the front end, leading edge of Defending human rights and that kind of stuff, you know, arguing for that because we have it's it's rooted deeply in our theology. Let's get a little bit more complicated. What about euthanasia? Anybody going to do Emily? <laughs> Who's going to do Emily Latella? Let's get another one. <laughs> for the younger folks in the room. Saturday Night Live, Gilda Radner used to do Emily Latella, where she would go on and misunderstand something. What's all this about sex and vi or violence on TV? I like violence. I think they sound really nice. No, violence. Oh, never mind. So they ask about euthanasia. She says, I think young people should be allowed to live wherever they want. If they want to live in Asia, it's no euthanasia. It's where you kill people. Oh, never mind. So 
had to get that out of the way because Gilda left an indelible mark on our culture. <laughs> so what about euthanasia? This isn't killing somebody because you're stronger than them or you're invading their country or, you know, something like that. This is a person who is dying. And hopefully <laughs> they want to be, they want to die uh, with ease instead of having a lingering death and all of that. Just give me an overdose of drugs and let me fall asleep. Mm -hmm. But uh, I don't know how to work. The, 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 the time issue. Time is in God's hands from your beginning to your end. Mm -hmm. I've seen um, stories of young children who get forms of cancer, and they're, they're not like just weak and dying. They're suffering. And why would you make this child just continue to suffer for so long? Isn't it? And, and does the image of God play into this um, of executing somebody who is, you know, wants to die and is, is suffering? I mean, if you go wrong real fast and turn into murder, is maybe the biggest argument against it. Mm -hmm. I mean, otherwise, to be honest, I think we're going to help. Um, our state senators are debating a bill right now that would allow abortion up to six weeks after birth. Yeah, it's, um, it's a different thing, but it's, it's because they don't have a concept of the image of God. Yeah. This is a clump of cells, and so, of course, we can terminate it. Um, here's, the pro here's my problem with euthanasia. Um, you have a child who's got leukemia or something, some really horrible disease. They're suffering. They're wasting away. And so you say, out of mercy, I'm going to just, you know, give them some sleeping pills and then give them an injection and they won't wake back up. I, and I, the I next think, day. I think euthanasia in children and euthanasia in adults, I feel like it's kind of two different subjects. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, and, or, you know, an older person or something like that. And, and they just go to sleep and they don't wake up. And the next day they find a cure for the disease. Yeah. How horrible would that be? You know? Um, we we didn't wait long enough. We didn't, you know, this this is part of our culture is God has given us dominion over the earth. And one of the ways that we exercise dominion is warring against the effects of sin. And so medical advancement is one of the ways that we war against sin. We're finding ways to cure these diseases that we brought on ourselves, that Adam invited into the world. And, and we're doing that. So, yeah, euthanasia is just a really tricky one. The, it feels like the thought process for capital punishment in euthanasia are exactly flipped. Mm. Where, to me, capital punishment is fear of taking on the responsibility of applying what God has told us properly. And euthanasia is wanting to do it out of mercy. Mm. So they're the two opposite sides of the coin. Mm. The same thing, but one is out of fear that we don't do it, and then one is out of this desire for mercy, which might also be fear. Yeah. We don't want to see people suffer, so we'll kill them. But we don't want to kill people because we might be wrong. But 
we're going to do it anyway. And we're, yeah, it's. Um, we weren't made to suffer, but we have fallen into a world. We've created a world where suffering is a reality. Yeah. And then for the Christian, we suffer in a very different way because we're suffering for righteousness, because we're standing up for what God is, is doing in the world. And people don't like that in a fallen world with a bunch of fallen people. Yeah, that's actually a good question. I'm going to write that in there as suicide. Yeah, that was kind of my train of thought was the only situation in which euthanasia is, I would debate on is when you have someone who is terminal and they have opted, I want to end my suffering, and they have made that choice of a sound mind. Mm. It, that's, that's where I think the debate is. I'm not saying that I necessarily am 100% with it, but then does it just become suicide? And then if it does, then... Suicide have, you know, standing yeah, here's, here's the other, throwing a monkey wrench into that, make it even more complicated. Um, you've got a person who gets um, really bad cancer, and they don't want to die. And so they're going through every treatment, every chemo, they're doing everything. They spend all of their money, they rack up a bunch of debt just to extend their life a couple of more years, and then they die. Now their family inherits all that debt. Was that the right thing to do? Or would they look at it and go, hey, let's, you know, no extraordinary measures. I know death is coming. And so, you know, if you could just make my last few months or, or a year easy, then let's do that. Is that the same thing as euthanasia? Saying I could go much further with this. I could take these advanced drugs. I could go, you know, get all these other treatments to extend my life another year or another year. Is that the same thing as saying, hey, no, no heroic measures? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Eat up your, your inheritance that you were going to leave your kids. Now you've just spent it to have one year of chemotherapy that is just horrible and you're barfing all the time. And, you know, the, it's, you spent it to get that one more year of life. I taught a while ago, um, Finishing Well, by a friend of ours from uh, Illinois, Dr. Um, John Dunlap. And he's talking about how does a Christian face these questions of end-of-life issues. And um, we shouldn't snuff out life, but we don't necessarily fear death, and so we don't have to spend every ounce of our energy and our money and our children's inheritance just to squeak out another year. It's like, hey, God's in charge. I didn't get this cancer because it got past God. 
And so I'll take reasonable steps, but I'm not afraid to die. I mean, you know, so it's a little different. But um, people who fear death, you know, they're going to blow everything they've got just to, to try to last a little bit longer. And um, and that's that's difficult. So what about suicide? If you commit suicide, can you go to heaven? <laughs> no, you can't go to heaven. Yeah. Yeah. Because you've committed murder. And you didn't have time to repent because you committed murder. So, I think that was pretty much the exact one. So that is the unpardonable sin. It's unpardonable because you couldn't ask for forgiveness because you committed suicide too quick. So if you commit suicide, do it slowly, so you have time to repent. I'm sorry. Um, yeah. Yeah. On the way down, they're like, wish I hadn't done that. Well, some people commit suicide out of sheer desperation. They just can't. Fa- either it's an illness or severe depression or you know, any number of reasons, and they wind up committing, the only way they can see out of this, they can't deal with the pain any further. And and so the only way that they can foresee a way out of this is just to end the pain, um, whether it's physical, emotional, something like that. And so I, I tend, personally, I tend to be very sympathetic with that. Um, I don't think suicide is the unpardonable sin. Um, I think it's a tragic way to go. I think it's a bad decision because you don't know what's coming next. God could turn it around. You just don't have any way of knowing. But that's easy for me to say because I'm very comfortable and very happy and, you know, not suffering. And when somebody's in that position, boy, that's, that's a very different place to be, you know. And I just think that's that's a hard one to argue. Well, that's the question of that just opens up the whole can. Yeah. Yeah. We're saved by grace. Yeah. We're saved by grace. It's not how much faith you have. It's what you have faith in. So your faith can be really deep and really strong, or it can be very thin. We're saved by faith, not by works. And so that's the important part. Um, that's the difficult part. What about abortion? That's that's all of this kind of rolled into one, isn't it? <laughs> all right. So here's a question: When is um, when is a human conceived? When it, when does the the embryo become human? Uh, at, at conception. At conception, but if a sperm penetrates an egg cell and fertilizes the egg. There's a fair number of those eggs that do not implant on the uterine wall and are just washed out of the body. Is, did that, was that a human being that died? Or when the sperm uh, fertilizes the cell, the egg, and then it implants on the uterine wall and it begins to multiply there, is that a human being? Is that when a human is conceived? 
What about fallopian tube, or what do they call it, in ectopic pregnancies? Um, yeah, so that, that was a question because we, it, it was really interesting. In Christian ethics in seminary, we talked about this, and it's like there's different stages at which you could say, is this when life begins? And we're not sure. It's, it's not abundantly clear because if we say as soon as the, the egg is fertilized that life has begun, then a fair number of human beings don't make it past that stage. It's not murder. It's just... Right. This wasn't even a spontaneous abortion. This is, it didn't even implant on the uterine wall. It just washed right out of the body. So, yeah. yeah. Is, isn't that something that nature or God is doing rather than us coming in and then saying, we're choosing to wipe this out? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I, I think the best argument here is we don't know. So let's go when it's really first possible. Or if it implants, it scrapes it off. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So if you ever see an argument about um, masturbation as mass murder, you go, yeah, right. Obviously, you don't understand the position. (laughs) Yeah. A, A single sperm is not a human being. It is a potential human being. It has to meet with an egg. So, yeah. So. Oh yeah. And but and, and you, you can't have children but you the, the lab it makes it happen. But it's not just one. You get the, the lab gets several I'm talking in general, they get mm-hmm. several good connections. You get about a dozen fertilized eggs and then you take them and you implant them and yeah. see if that one takes. So that didn't take, let's try this one. No, oh that one took, now we've got eight cells no, left. What do we do with it? It, are those human beings? And yeah, and what happens, uh, you know, when you when you stop, you you get you get rid of those. Yeah, they're, they're gonna they right they're now. not gonna store them. What would they do with them? So it's just it's just a cell. Just throw it away, right? Did you just throw a bunch of human beings away? Yeah, that's that's why the question comes up. Are they actively conceived, or is it uh, again just a, a potential human being? Because it's it, one argument is it's not actually the cells don't start dividing. It doesn't turn into something other than its mother until it plants on the wall and begins to divide. So you know, yeah. Yeah, it's it's. I think it's just like you know what? I don't know. So let's just play it safe. You know, that's kind of my take on it. Let's, let's start at the beginning and just say this is where we're going to be. Okay. I think that's enough, you guys. Eight o'clock. Um,